We're beginning a new series. We're going to work our way through the Paul's letter to 2 Corinthians. If there are four books of the Bible whose message, I believe it's really important to internalize. If you get a sense for these books and what their message is, I think it helps us to understand some really critical things biblically. And those books would be Hebrews. We went through that. And Romans, that has the kind of the essence of what the gospel message is. Galatians. It's about what happens with the church that kind of loses touch with the message. And then 2 Corinthians, and that's what we're going to spend our time going through for the next couple of months. Um, And that gives us an image. It's really, it's very personal. Paul kind of shares a lot of very personal things from his heart about what it means for him to, to be the one to and through whom God would express the gospel to Gentiles. And we learn a lot of things about being a person to and through whom God reveals himself to others. And so we're going to walk through. This letter has a lot of really, really good stuff. Um, We think about Corinth just to give you a sense for the kind of city that Corinth was, to give us a sense for the people that lived there. It was a dazzling, kind of modern Greco-Roman city. The Greek culture existed before the Romans conquered them, but the Romans didn't extinguish the Greek culture, even though they brought their own leadership. So it's a combination of kind of old and new. And that's what Corinth was like. It was something, if you think about a city like Chicago, which is like a commercial link between the East and the West. It's a kind of a hub. That's what Corinth was like. It, it was a hub city and there was all kinds of trade and that, that happened there. Um, in contrast to the poverty of the countryside, the inhabitants of the city were wealthy and they flaunted it. Uh, Corinth, somebody says, seems to have been a city designed for those who were preoccupied with the allure of social status. It attracted the yuppies of that day. Yuppies was a term in the latter part of the last decade, a couple decades ago, really. Young, upward, I know, okay, come on, give me a break. We, you know, time goes fast. The older you get, the quicker time goes by. So, so sometime back ago. Um, young, upwardly mobile professionals. And that's the kind of individuals that, that Corinth attracted. Um, schmoozing, massaging a superior's ego, rubbing shoulders with the powerful, pulling strings, scratching each other's back, dragging, dragging rivals' names through the mud, all describe what was required to attain success in this society. And the people who moved to Corinth, they really played these games. The problem was not that the church was in Corinth. That was a good thing. The problem that was too much of Corinth in the church. That's kind of the issue. Power manifesting itself in ruthlessness and self-advancement kind of percolated in the church. So for many, the Christian community became simply another arena to compete for status. And so if you could be the most spiritual, you had the most outlandish spiritual gifts, that's what people did. They wanted to call attention to their influence and their power. Uh, Most of the problems that Paul addresses in both the first letter, 1 Corinthians and this letter, has to do 
with the infusion of worldly culture into the church. Look what it says as we kind of pick up the beginning of this letter. You'll notice in a letter like this, we've said this before, it's a little bit weirder because the writer and the recipients are placed first in the letters, just the way they did letters in those days. So that's what we find. Um, says Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer, our Paul, and he calls attention to Timothy as well, who is his protege. protege. If you think of who was closest to Jesus, he seems to have had a little bit of closer relationship with John. And so John was the one who really plugged into Jesus. And when we think of Paul's protege, that would be Timothy. Timothy was the one who really stayed connected to Paul. And so both of them are mentioned as the authors, the writers of the letter. The Church of God, also called saints, are the recipients. Now, when we think of saints, that's a word that in our time cannot refer to the super spiritual, you know, like church I grew up in. To be a saint, you had to have done some things that reflected supernatural involvement. You have to have a couple miracles attached to your name in order to be canonized as a saint. But when the Bible talks about saints, it's not talking about super spiritual people. The saint really means the, the, the sense for saint is for somebody who has been set apart by God. That's what a saint is, someone who has been set apart or someone who is holy, a holy one. Um, when we think of holiness, we think of, we tend to think of what you don't do in order to be holy. The holy people are those who don't do these things and don't do these things initially. Holiness was not about what you didn't do, it's about what you did do. It's about who you were connected with and who you served. Somebody who was holy was set apart by God to be used by him. Um, so a saint is just one who's been set apart for divine use a son or daughter of God. And these individuals are the blessed. Good it says in verse 3, talks about being blessed. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. It talks about God as the Father of mercies. Mercies is is a word that describes uh, a concern for the troubles of another person. Um, it's expressed as different things, pity or compassion. Literally, what mercy is, it has to do with words for kind of your stomach or the, your guts. It's What pity or mercies is, it's a gut level, oh, and when you think of seeing something, somebody hurting, maybe coming by the place of an accident or seeing something happen to an individual and it's, ugh, um, that's the sense for mercies. And when it describes God and his character, 
He is the Father of mercies. So if you want to look to the one from whom that basic understanding, oh, that's God. He is the Father of mercies. Now, that is not the picture that the entire Bible paints of God. However, on this side of the cross, Jesus reveals God in a way that he wasn't revealed prior to that. We've talked about prior to Jesus coming, we could only know God in analog form. He just was fuzzy, like a shadow. We couldn't know him clearly. On this side of the cross, we have a digital signal. Jesus reveals God in a clearer way. What is God like? And if you want to understand what God is like, you really have to look at Jesus. What is Jesus like? That's what God is like. That's who God is like. Um, he is the father of mercies, and it says he is the God of all comfort. The word comfort, when we think of comfort, it, we can think of comfort kind of as a tranquilizing dose of grace that dulls pains. That's what comfort can be. You know, when you think about it, we've talked about this before, you think of the Lion King, and you think of comfort, you think of uh, Timon and Pumbaa. You know, kind of, you know, unplug and eat bugs and don't worry about going back to where you needed to go before. And, and that's comfort, but that's not really the word. It talks about God being the God of all comfort, but that's, it's not Timon and Pumbaa. That's not the word. The individual that you want to, that you kind of bring into, into, into vision in terms of the word, it's Rafiki. Rafiki is the one who challenges Simba to go back and to, to take the road that's truly best for him, the one, the road that he was destined to take. It's not an easy road, but it's the road that will allow him to be all the things that he wanted to be. That's the sense for encouragement. That's the, it's really more encouragement than comfort. The word is. So God of all comfort, it's really the father of mercies and the God of all encouragement. And again, encouragement is a stiffening agent that fortifies heart, mind, and soul. What encouragement literally is, it's when someone calls another person to their side. Imagine there is a person who is walking a road and <laughs> and they wonder if they can keep walking. They, they're experiencing things that are difficult. Let me give you two images. One would be encouragement. Let's make another image, accountability. We talk about accountability sometimes in the church and how we need to hold one another accountable. Accountability seems to be when you stand in front of a person and you assess how they're doing. Let me see, how are you doing? How are we, anybody have Patriots colors on? You're not doing very well. You know, that's accountability. It may be craziness. That's, but accountability is when you assess someone. 
Encouragement is a different thing. It's when you call somebody alongside, you're not standing in front of them, assessing them. You're walking alongside them, helping them to stay on the road that's truly best. You see the difference with those images? One evaluates, assesses, the other walks alongside. That's encouragement. It's when you call somebody alongside and you use your influence to empower and stiffen that person to keep on the road that's truly best for them. Uh, God's comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. That's what encouragement does. So when it says he is the father of mercies, There is a deep sense of understanding, but he is the God of all encouragement. And he is the fountain, the genesis of encouragement. God channels merciful encouragement. Um, Two word, two really questions to consider that this passage will help us to kind of try to nail down. Who does God channel? merciful encouragement to? Who does he channel it to? And another question, how does he do it? Who does he channel merciful encouragement to? I'm going to read a verse. It's not in your worship folder. Just listen. It's when Jesus enters the synagogue in the beginning of his public ministry. He went to Nazareth where he grew up in the northern part of Israel, um, where he had been brought up. And it says in Luke 4, on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's four titles of individuals that are the individuals to whom God sent Jesus to relate, especially, and what it indicates, uh, the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. So that tells us who it is that God speaks to in a particularly focused way. And now, so that's who, and the question then is, how? How does God channel merciful encouragement to them. It's in a, yeah, it's, and that's really what this passage talks about. Look what it says, verse 4 in 2 Corinthians. It talks about God, the Father of mercy, the God of all encouragement, who comforts, encourages us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience once you when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. How does God encourage the afflicted? Does he stream encouragement directly into their brains? Does he speak to them in dreams, directly streaming influence into their minds, hoping that they pick up a Bible? Is that the way it seems to? It's not really what this suggests. What it says is that God channels encouragement through human representatives. That's how God reveals himself to those to whom he would speak. He speaks through his sons and daughters to those who are afflicted and depressed. He, didn't, he doesn't need to do it this way. He could have done it any way he wants. And God could have been the kind of person who kind of puts these timeless truths and he could have written them on the sky, and anybody who wants to could have looked up and seen them, and if they were looking, he could have done it that way, but that's not the way he did it. When God has something to say to someone that he wants to reach out to, he designates representatives to carry his message to them. That is, this is not the exception it is the rule, if you look at it. And it makes sense, though, doesn't it? When you think of, why did Jesus need to grow up among us? He could have come at age 30. God could have plumped him on the, on the earth at age 30, put him on the cross, had him die for us, but it's not the way it worked. God kind of incorporates his message in people's minds and hearts. And that's what we have here. Um, God uses representatives to encourage the afflicted. Let's just stick with that. Okay, God uses human representatives to encourage the afflicted. When then someone is afflicted, what God will do is dispatch a son or daughter, not to hold that person accountable. Well, if you did X and Y, you wouldn't be in the mess that you're in, but you did X and Y, and so you kind of get, that's not what he does. He sends someone alongside the afflicted person to come alongside and to try to assist and walk with them. That's what God does. That's how he reaches out to the afflicted. What are the implications? The implications are striking. And true, 
but not very fun. God's representatives need to experience afflictions in order to have something relevant to say to the afflicted. You understand what I'm saying? If God dispatches his sons and daughters to give something real to those who are afflicted, the sons and daughters need to have experienced affliction in order to have something real to give somebody, not pious platitudes, but a real sense of, hey, I see where you are and I, and I see your pain and you know, I, I get that, I get pain. Um, in order to have something from God to say to the afflicted, We need to have been afflicted and have God said, had, and, and experienced God saying something to us. And this is not really good news. It is good news, but it's not. If everything in your life is great, and I guess, I don't know, but it doesn't put you in a real good place to be God's representative because God speaks to the afflicted through the afflicted. And I want to talk to those of you whose life is not what you'd like it to be. And you might imagine, why is God abandoning me? Why is he not blessing me? Those who are the blessed are the stressed. Those to and through God reveals himself are individuals who have had to learn to relate to God in the middle of difficulties. Um, it makes sense of a familiar and yet troubling passage. And it's kind of a nice passage that, you know, it's, look at Matthew 5. It's kind of nice except for when you think about what it's saying. <laughs> blessed, blessed is a great thing. You know, when you think of blessed, everybody has a way to, fill in the blank with blessed. Blessed are the... Who are the blessed? Everybody, every culture has a way of filling in the blanks. How would the Corinthians fill in the blanks from what you know about them? Blessed are the yuppies. Blessed are those who have glory and honor. Great, blessed are those who are wealthy. Blessed are the beautiful. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the in charge. Everybody has a way to fill in that blank. Every culture. That's how Corinth would have figured. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Our culture is a lot like Corinth. We're very powerful. I really like this culture in some ways. In some ways, it really is like a Corinthian culture. Um, okay. There are individuals in our culture who are struggling. And, and so what it ends up, so what, who are the blessed biblically? Okay, then it says, um, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've talked about what poor in spirit is. In a spiritual perspective, being poor in spirit, there's two kinds of poverty in the Bible. One is a laborer's poverty, a laborer's poverty. And the other's is a beggar's poverty. And when it talks about poor in spirit, it's not talking about a blue collar poverty. It's talking about a beggar's poverty, blessed are the poor in spirit, who in a spiritual perspective kind of experience this, I need a gift. If I'm going to be who God wants me to be, I'm going to need a gift. I'm not going to be able to just pull myself up by the bootstraps and get this done. That's not poverty of spirit. Um, says, blessed for the kingdom of heaven, blessed are those who mourn. There's two kinds of words for mourning. One is a word for kind of feeling bad. But there's another word it, when you can't keep it in and it just comes out. It's, it's too painful to keep in. That's the word for mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Um, for they will be comforted. Same word. They will be encouraged. Blessed are the meek. The meek are those who can't use what they have to get what they want. They can't leverage material, emotional, or spiritual position and privilege to be able to get what they want. They can't demand a hearing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will call sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God channels encouragement through the afflicted to the afflicted. In our time, it just is what it is. Um, So much of modern ministry revolves around things that seem powerful. Our buildings need to be big in the sacred sphere. And you need to be able to get what you want. And we like our individuals who are in leadership of the church to be powerful and strong, good leaders, individuals who are struggling. We want to come alongside, but we wonder what they did wrong. Um, When it comes to representing God, this is interesting. When it comes to representing God, trials, limitations, failures, and weaknesses are assets, not liabilities. With respect to reflecting God's mercy and encouragement, the blessed are the stressed. Um, What it says in verse 8, 2 Corinthians 3, says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction of, we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We don't know exactly what he was talking about. It might be when he was in Ephesus and there was there were individuals who made a really good living by selling artifacts associated with a local shrine to the goddess Artemis. And anyways, they made a good living. People went to this place, to Ephesus, and and these silversmiths, they made a really good living by casting these little statues of Artemis and selling them. 
And so Paul was in Ephesus and talking about the gospel and doing all kinds of miracles. And a lot of people from the community are going, boy, this seems to be the truth. And this seems to be a more true thing than in any way. The sales of these um, offerings, these products of the silversmith's trade, they started to decrease. So the the silversmiths got together and they... They made it so that Paul was really, really put through the ringer. And that might be what he's talking about. We don't know. But he despaired of life. He says, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. He goes on, um, says again in verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. When we think about this, you know, so Paul learned not to rely on himself. Somebody said this once, um, God's address is at the end of your rope. That's where Paul was, at the end of his rope. And he wasn't smiling, and he wasn't happy, and he wasn't on top of it, and he wasn't singing victory in Jesus, what he was singing and what he was saying is, I don't know if I can put another foot in front of another. Um, it says, he goes on verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul came through a terrifying time of really intense persecution, and the experience was overwhelming. Even for a person like Paul, who, geez, he, he, he really looked, we talked about this, he really looked like 20 miles of bad road. He really did. All these things, and in fact, you know what the deal is in Corinth? The things that he suffered, the misfortunes that he experienced, now get this, those are being used as the basis to discredit him. Do you understand what it's saying? Those who claimed to speak for God, they did it well and they looked powerful and they had visions and all these experiences and they had letters of recommendation and they had all these things that made them look powerful and strong. And Paul looked like he definitely wouldn't have been the cover boy on Glory of God Monthly. I mean, But what he ends up saying is the things that he suffered, get this, this sounds nice. Those things he suffered, Paul said, they didn't disqualify him. They qualified him. And you know what Paul did when he pointed out why he should say that? Look at Jesus. See, what ended up happening, when Jesus rose, people would say, well, Jesus is the God of glory, and so those who represent God need to be glorious. And what Paul said before he was the God of glory, he was Christ on the cross. So how does God reveal himself? Through the powerful or through the persecuted? Through the strong, through the weak. What Paul's going to talk about in Second Corinthians is the strength of weakness. 
the strength of weakness. When we're at a place where we don't know how we're going to make it happen, that's when we rely on God because we have to. It's not a fun place. I want to say that. This is not fun. And if you get to a place where you feel sad and you feel broken and you think, boy, I've got to really be happy and smile. No, you don't. No, you don't. You know what you can do? You can touch your pain and you can touch God's hand at the same time because that's what Jesus did. He didn't pretend. Would you agree? Garden of Gethsemane, did he... Did he say, boy, I tell you what, I've got two days. I can't be sad. I've got to, I've got to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I've got to die in a day and a half. You know what he did? He didn't do that. His tears were like, his tears weren't drops of blood, but his tears were that big. Jesus got to places in his life. Get this. This is really a big thing. Jesus trusted God enough to be sad with him. I want you to think about a person you can be sad with. Try to get a person in mind. If you were sad, who would you go to see? Because you got somebody in mind? I want you to think about it. What is it about that person that causes you to want to go be with them? I imagine you'd find two things there, mercy and encouragement. Somebody who understands, but somebody who comes alongside. If, you've got, if you talk to somebody and they say, well, this, you didn't pray enough, I'll tell you what, you won't get out of there fast enough. It's interesting, this guy, Joe Bailey, he lost two kids in a car crash. And he, I told you about this before, it's, and he writes a book, View from a Hearse. And he talks about individuals that came by when he was sitting there grieving the death of his two children. And somebody came and said, boy, I tell you what, God really must think a lot of you for choosing to put you through such a difficult thing in order to make you strong. And he couldn't wait for this person to leave. Just go. You try to make me feel good. Just And he didn't say this. He was too nice. But he just couldn't wait for the person to leave. You ever run into that? Somebody who has to try to say something to try to make it, I don't know, less painful? Anyways, somebody else came and they started to quote these flowery psalms. And he couldn't wait for that person to leave. And finally somebody came, and this is what he wrote. Came and sat quietly, prayed simply, and left. And he said, I, I, I hated it when they left. Didn't have to have all these answers. Somebody who understood pain enough to be able to sit with somebody in pain and not have to fill in all the blanks with, with all these things. Somebody who could just sit there and hurt with them, come alongside them and comfort them. There's, that's the, 
Would you, and when you think of the person, would you agree with me? Somebody who's merciful, somebody who's encouraging. You don't need to have been heaven. You don't need somebody with all the answers. You know what we need to reflect God? Mercy and encouragement. Some of you are saying, Mike, I don't know the Bible enough. It's helpful to know the Bible. But if you know the Bible and what you do is try to give people a bunch of answers, that's not really helpful. People don't need answers. Not the, not the afflicted, not the hurting. What do they need? You know that by now, don't you? Two things. What's the first thing? Mercy. What's the second thing? And God is the source of both of them. That's who he is. He's the father of mercies. He is. He's the God of all. That's who he is. And you know what he wants us to do? Get this. When we feel sad, I want you to listen to me. He doesn't want us to take Bible verses and move the sadness out of the way. You know what he wants you to do? He wants you to tell him about it. How are you sad? I can't. He really does. He wants you to open your heart to him. Because you know what might happen if you open your heart to him and he gives you something, something real? You might come alongside somebody else who's hurting and give them something real. In ordinary times, we get along pretty well. Our faith is tested, not in good times, but in bad. Um, what it says, the last verse we'll look at, it's about what he did in the wilderness. And by the way, the only individuals God led into the wilderness, it's going to describe a process, God never led strangers into the wilderness. Only his sons and daughters. So that he could, in their affliction, comfort them so that they would have something to add again. Look what it says. How does God, what's a wilderness like? Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your father should know, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes do not wear out and your feet do not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, So the Lord your God disciplines you. We talk about the word discipline. It means child rearing. It means to be literally to be with child. And that's what God does in the wilderness. He brings his sons and daughters into the wilderness because that's a place where they will learn something he needs them to understand. And he does three things. Three things happen in the wilderness. Number one, there's hunger. And what it says He humbled you, causing you to hunger. 
and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. How does hunger work? You know what hunger is? It's a God-given alarm system that there's a need that is being unmet, and it's, it's at your peril. That's what hunger is. It's when normal chains of supply and demand are interrupted. So if you've got everything you want and need, that's not hunger. If you don't have everything you want and need, that's hunger. Number one is hunger. Number two is humility. Humility is not somebody who says, oh, no, it wasn't me. Oh, please, please. (laughs) Humility is not being self-effacing, not biblically. Biblical humility is not something that you choose. In fact, you can't choose it. Nobody would choose it. Biblical humility is when you're put in a situation where you are facing the fact that I cannot use what I have to get what I want. That's what humility is. It's facing a financial situation and you just don't have the resources. That's humility. You can't use what you have to get what you want. On an emotional level, you can't use what you have to get what you want. You you want to use your strength of character to try to be and reflect the cut, but you can't do it. On a spiritual level, that's where humility is. You never choose humility. It's when you're brought into a situation that you would leave if you could, but you can't. When you're stuck, that's humility. Hunger, humility. Surprisingly, the third thing, there's three of them. Hunger, humility, Hearing, hearing, look what it says. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Literally what this says, man doesn't live by bread, but by everything that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Where does your money come from? God, where does everything come from? What it's saying, not only the things we see come from the mouth of the Lord. You know what else comes from the mouth of God? Mercy, encouragement, words that we end up not audibly, but we get a message from him. And when we get that message, it usually is when we're in a place where we really need to hear it. Hunger, humility, hearing. We, we really don't trust God until we have to. Do you agree? And I don't want, I don't think it works that we, it's one continual perils of Paul or Pauline. I don't think that's the way it was. That wasn't the way it was with Paul but he really came to some, some places that were very difficult. Not all the time. In fact, didn't he say, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. We get both things. But what Paul understood, I can do all things through him who gives me stuff. Yeah, that's what it says. I can do all things through him who gives me stuff. Right? 
No, come on. He gives us stuff. If, if God's going to bless you, you're going to prosper, right? Right? If God bless you, you're going to get a bunch of money, right? Or you're going to be victory over all your sin, right? If God blesses you. The blessed aren't distressed, are they? Are they? The blessed are the stressed. Do you know what God wants to do? He wants to bring us to places, and this is not fun, where we have needs, we have hunger, we experience humility. And we turn to him in a way because we have to. And I, if I talk to some of if I talk to you, in fact, I bet you're thinking about it. Have you been in a place that you were really struggling and it might have come through a person? Oftentimes it does. Somebody came to you and said something to you that felt like, you ever feel that? And the strength that it gave you, you didn't know what you were going to do. And you got the phone call or somebody came over and they came and put their arm around you and you know what you got there? Strength. Strength. You could go another day. That's what, that's what you end up getting. And that's what God gives us. And, and then if we, we experience that strength, do you, have you had those times? I can think of times. I can think of times. They were really difficult. Sometimes it's alone. I was in a place that was uh, really was an awful place. I didn't, uh, yeah. and I told you about this. Really kind of funny, actually. Um, I was in this place and just sobbing. And I said, God, I know the Bible and I know where I should go, but I can't. I just can't. And then I saw, I did this, I did, really, I told you this before, but I'll never forget it. I passed by this place where I was, and I always think about, and this has been over a couple decades, I did this. Don't do that, by the way. <laughs> Don't do that. But this, and it wasn't one of those cheaty kind of things, you know, where I had to go, well, maybe I really wasn't putting on this. This is what I read right next to my finger. Again, and the rains descended, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall, for it had been founded on a rock, and it felt like it was, a, you know what it felt like? Mercy and encouragement. That's what it felt like. It felt like being understood, but it felt like somebody coming alongside and giving me something that allowed me to put one foot in front of another. It doesn't always happen like that. Some of us are pretty internal. Some of us are not as internal. Some of us are really, some of us, a lot of our encouragement is relational. And I bet you, you could think of those times when the person called. Couldn't you, can't you? Came alongside, they said this, they said that. And, and some of you, you won't forget it. You're desperate. Um, it's kind of the way it works. Discipline is the process of becoming channels of divine encouragement. Um, learning to reflect God is not about eliminating tension. It's about learning to endure it and about reaching out for, remember the two things now, the two things that God is really good at. So 
so that he can give you what you need in times of need. We're going to, not Brett, Taylor, come on up, and Adam, and Mark, yeah, thanks. We'll say a closing song. Let's stand together. Let's all continue to stand and <laughs> see. That was what just happened there. That's encouragement, and that's me not hearing encouragement because I don't hear really well. Mark came over to me and he goes, "Communion," and I didn't. I had no idea what he said. I think I thought he said sorry about the Patriots, <laughs> which is kind of him. Anyways, um, we're gonna, when you think about. Um, mercy and encouragement, uh, think of Jesus and, and the cross, and certainly we can understand that he understands what it's like to walk in our shoes when we see him. He's not the God of glory, he was the Christ who experienced difficult things, but did he experience them alone? Jesus walked with the Father. He had such a sense of him being with him, it gave him sh well, strength. Um, we're gonna experience communion. We're gonna sing some songs, uh, not you guys won't play yet, but you'll, they're going to stay up here because I... So I'm going to pray for us and then go grab the elements. Um, come back and sit in your seats and think about mercy and encouragement and how good the Father is at both of them. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for um, the celebration and for the meaning of it. It's, if everything's wonderful, then we can still experience this, but if we are in need of mercy and encouragement, it's a place that has a deeper meaning. So as we partake of the elements, um, thank you for your love and your purposes and your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.